When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, just in time for the holidays. Right now, get $5 off the Winter Winston set, even if you're a returning customer. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code CULTUREHOLIDAY. And by the critically acclaimed film Boyhood. Filmed over 12 years with the same cast by director Richard Linklater, Boyhood tells a universal story of family and growing up. Buy Boyhood today on Digital HD from Paramount Pictures, rated R. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Rock, Paper, Scissors edition. It's Wednesday, December 10th, 2014. On today's show, Wild is the new film from the director of Dallas Buyers Club, a movie which, as I remember, we all loved. I loved it, certainly. It stars Reese Witherspoon as a woman hiking the Pacific Crest Trail in search of her lost self. And then we went to the Museum of Modern Art to look at a truly extraordinary exhibit of Henri Matisse cutouts. Would you say Henri or Henry? I mean, I'd say Henry, but... but don't mind me. Hank. I call him Hank. <laughs> uh, if we're okay with Henry, I'll say it. Henry Matisse. And then finally, the sophomore slump. It is no less true, apparently, of literature than it is of sports. What is it about second novels? We're joined uh, to discuss this by Slate's own Dan Coyce. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. All right. Well, we have to frank. We have, in good conscience, we have to frankify the name of the director of this movie. Um, so let me see how I how I do here. Wild is the new movie from Jean-Marc Vallée, the director of Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, the screenplay is by curiously by Nick Hornby. It stars Reese Witherspoon as Cheryl Strayed, a woman who has unmercifully destroyed her marriage and is well on her way to destroying herself when she decides to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico up to Oregon solo in order to, well, she doesn't know. That's, in fact, the substance of the movie, discovering, in a sense, why she's done it in the first place and what she's in search of and what is missing from her life. Why don't we listen to a clip and then we'll dig in. I have only another 300 miles left to walk. I'm desperate for it to be over. But I'm terrified too. When I'm done, I'll only have two dimes to my name. But I'll have to start living. I'm nowhere near ready. So we should mention before we discuss the clip that this movie is based on a best-selling memoir by Cheryl Strayed, also called Wild. Uh, and it's a true story. It's based on her real adventure hiking the trail in, I think, 96, was it? I forget what year. It was a very long period of time that elapsed between the hike and writing about it, which is something fascinating we should talk about. I think it was 17 years after making the hike that she decided to write a book about it. So it's a long marinated memoir. Yeah. And the book is really compelling and fascinating. And I I loved the movie. What did you guys think? 
Yeah, to my surprise, I really I was kind of blown away by this movie. I think I kind of went in thinking I knew what to expect because it's a memoir of self-discovery written by a woman. And I don't know, I think I had some sort of eat, pray, love template in my mind that was not at all what this movie was like. My friend Stephanie Zaharik, who's the film critic for The Village Voice, had a great line about it where she said, this is, Wild is a, is a film about a woman's voyage of self-discovery that doesn't make me want to throw up. Mm. <laughs> and I don't know, if, if Steve, if you had that response as well. I, I, well for, I knew nothing about the movie other than its start time. I mean, literally, when I walked at its title and its start time, and that it had Reese Witherspoon. And within 30 seconds, I, it reminded me of Dallas Buyers Club, and I didn't know it was the same director. So I'll begin with him very quickly. I mean, I think he took elements for Dallas Buyers Club and made, I thought, a near masterpiece. I thought he made a wonderful movie. And I think in the same way here, he took elements that described to me in the raw form I would find totally unappealing, and he made a beautiful and very moving, almost gutting movie, Emotional Journey. I found it entirely persuasive. It occurred to me halfway through. It was a kind of anti-Ypres love I love her performance. So I I thought it was a a terrific movie through and through. I agree that the direction is really key to what makes the movie work. And that's not to underplay Reese Witherspoon's performance. I mean, the role has many modes. She sort of grows up as a good girl. Then through a series of life events, she dabbles with being a bad girl. And then mostly we're just in her head on the trail hiking. But I thought in the visuals and in the sound design, basically, of the movie, it captured an interior monologue in a way that did not feel canned. Like, I've never heard... I mean, basically, it's a memoir of what happened in her head while she put one foot in front of the other for hundreds and hundreds of miles, right? And so, fundamentally, that's like a voiceover movie. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think we saw that with um, 27 Hours or what, 127 Hours? How, how long, however long James Franco was pinned <laughs> under that rock. How long it took him to saw the arm. And I don't remember that much about the sound design of that movie or exactly how the, it functioned. And I know the, the video element was used there, but... You could imagine, you know, it's like Reese Witherspoon voiceover in the woods for two hours. Like, that does not sound good. But I thought there are all kinds of effects within the film that really mirror, like, what happens when you're totally gutted on a trail. Like, sometimes the picture almost blurred around the edges the way it does when you're, like, really exhausted on a trail and almost your vision is affected by your exhaustion and your dehydration. The sound of her talking to herself and swearing and urging herself forward um, almost feels... Some of there was a distinction between her out loud voice and her to herself in her head voice. Like they they created the that echoey sound of your voice talking to yourself, hmm. which I've never seen anyone do before. I mean, somebody must have tried at some point, but the realism with which that kind of internal conversation, that internal like willpower struggle that is a really hard hike uh, was conveyed was super impressive, I thought. Another element of the sound design that added to that sense of being inside someone's head was the scraps of music that would float in and out, which sometimes she would sing along with. There were these pop songs. The one that I keep remembering is the Simon and Garfunkel song, El Condor Pasa, which is, I think, a, like a Peruvian folk song that they adapted or something. But once in a while, you'll hear that song or another pop song floating in and out of the soundtrack in fragments, the way that you have music going through your head when you're alone. And sometimes Reese Witherspoon will start humming along with it, you know, so you're not quite aware of whether the music is happening in her brain or, or our brains. And that added to that fluidity there's of the a, inner monologue. There's a great moment, too, of how music can spur you forward on the trail where she's pretty early on in the hike and she's crossing a stream that's going at a pretty rapid clip and if you fell into it, it would be pretty bad and she has to kind of go across this slippery log to get across it and she she's kind of singing to herself 
and then it seems like a Bruce Springsteen song and then it's, she says out loud come on Bruce and she like <laughs> sings it a little bit louder and then the song comes up on the soundtrack and it like right it's like how you can spur that self-motivation forward I just, the, the film was just so inventive in that kind of storytelling and took it much far beyond the like pat memoir that it could have been yeah it's not there's nothing pat about it at all i'll I'll put it in a pet genre of mine that i'm collecting examples of which is something whose elevator pitch doesn't include the death that actually motivates in the work and makes it cohere so you know bright lights big city by mcinerney which is a novel that strangely holds up very well even though it was derided at the time is a grief memoir about the loss of his mother you know, Catcher in the Rye is really a grief novel about the loss of Holden's younger brother. F- uh, Richard Ford's Independence Day, uh, all of the Frank Baskin books are about the aftermath of a marriage that ended because of a, uh, the death of a child who we never meet. And this movie, I thought, was emotionally very uh, emotionally affecting because it really is about her relationship with her mother. Who's played by Laura Dern in a, in a bunch of flashbacks, which I thought, I mean, to me, the flashbacks, as much as I worship Laura Dern and I love her in that role, uh, those were really underdeveloped. I didn't feel like I knew that much about the mother, about her best friend, who's played by Gabby Hoffman, about her husband, who's played by Thomas Sadowski. There were these moments of, of flashback where the scraps that were given tell us something more about Cheryl Strayed, about Reese's character, but they don't necessarily develop everybody else. See, I disagree with that. I think she, to me, the story was meaningful beyond any of its particulars because she felt fucked by the universe, right? Like like the loss of this woman who was her reality and her closest friend uh, was a, not only that loss, it was, it was a statement of utter pitilessness on the part of, you know, nature and the cosmos. Right. And, God and, is the ruthless bitch, as she says at one she, point, which is a line from the memoir. That's what she has to go out there and walk and find again, which is that in its pit- pitilessness is also its beauty and its meaning. And you somehow have to reconcile those things or else you would just kind of give yourself up to. I mean, what she's given herself up to literally is drugs and and, and completely heartless, promiscuous sex. But what she's really given herself up to is this kind of meaninglessness. You know, she's totally lost possession of, of, of life. And, and I don't know. I, I, I mean, these all sound like cliches, but if you go see the movie, you'll discover they're not, in my estimation. But One thing um, that Catherine Schultz, the book critic for New York pointed out in a really wonderful essay about the book and the film and its popularity is both how unusual it is for a story like this to be popular. You know, a woman alone in the woods, as she pointed out, is like not something that you read a lot about when she's not being like stalked by a man with a chainsaw. And um, the very tidy pat beats of Eat, Pray, Love, where she's processing a lot of pain in her life, but she really gets it all processed by the end so neatly. And you give everything up and you get it all back and, you know, like, the you get the magazine if you give up real life, you get the magazine version you've always wanted back in return, which to me was just the central lie of that book. Right. The well, fundamental falseness of that story um, doesn't animate this one because it's really just one woman alone in her head. And as Catherine points out, she doesn't even really describe the wilderness that much. There's a moment in the interview where she said, my editor kept trying to get me to describe like different particular plants. And I kept being like, it was just wilderness. It's Mm -hmm. just wilderness. And that attention almost inward and the space to look inward as opposed to look outward. And I love the definiteness with which she places herself in a completely different literary tradition than the chiclet memoir. 
by leaving these little uh, along the trail, there are these little almost they look like little PO boxes that you can leave written messages in. And the hike itself and the narrative that we're witnessing are structured around her leaving behind quotes from all of the people in the American tradition of going into the wilderness of your own self completely alone or going into a literal wilderness completely by yourself. So she leaves quotes from Emily Dickinson and Thoreau and, you know, fill in the blank. I'm uh, Whitman. Frost. Uh, and Frost. Adrian uh, Rich. And, and Adrian Rich. And I, I, I like that that tradition, I, I love the way that tradition was extended by Adrian Rich to be it was ungendered by the great feminist poets in the 1970s. I think she's saying I extend that tradition further with this, with this hike and with this narrative. Well, she also co-signs the quotes, which is this funny thing, right? Everyone she'll sign in the log books along the trail, Emily Dickinson and Cheryl Strayed, you know, so there's also this sense of her kind of inventing herself as a writer as she goes along. I mean, something else that differentiates this from Eat, Pray, Love is just the fact that it's not a stunt memoir. This is not something that she did because she had a book contract to go discover something, right? I mean, it really was somebody, you know, a working class woman who essentially used all of her savings to buy this ridiculously overstuffed pack and do this kind of crazy thing. So it doesn't at all have the feeling to me of sort of a lifestyle choice. You know, I think I'll do this by way of healing my grief. You know, there really is sort of a sense of a person who's his hit bottom and is doing the only thing they can think of to do. All right. Well, I'd be completely remiss, Dana, if we didn't talk about Reese Witherspoon's performance in this movie. I feel like for me personally, she's just disappeared from my Ken, my movie uh, watching Ken. Um, uh, what do you think of uh, her performance and what do you think about how this fits in with uh, her career? I mean, she's she's great in the movie. It is it is obviously, you know, I think all of our praise about the movie has to take into account that this movie is definitely positioned for Reese Witherspoon to to win an Oscar, right? I mean, it is a deglamorizing role of the kind that act, you know, beautiful young actresses like to take on. Uh, the very first thing you see her do in the movie as Cheryl Strayed is sit down at the edge of a cliff and pull off her blackened bloody toenail and it's this it's sort of the big gross-out climax of the movie because this is not really a movie about, you know, tremendous physical hardship, although she is sort of bruised and banged up along the way. But yeah, Reese at the edge of a cliff, pulling off her toenail and throwing it off the cliff seems to me kind of throwing, she's throwing a gauntlet into the Oscar ring as well. And I would be happy to see her get it, although to tell you the truth, I'll be voting for Julianne Moore this year. All right, cool. All right. Well, we all like the movie very much. Uh, We'd love to hear what you all think about it. So uh, come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. The movie is wild. It's not out wide yet, but it's getting there soon enough. So check it out and let us know what you think. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week, Steve, is once again Harry's.com, whom I think some of our listeners have tried and can thank for their own smooth mugs and whom Dana and I can thank for your own uh, glorious visage this morning. Are you are you Harry's camped today, Steve? I'm 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 um, I'm harried. <laughs> I'm, I'm in every sense of the word, but I, I've shaved fairly recently, and uh, and it's just it, I, I I love it. So Harry's is the service that sends you a high quality razor with extra blades and smooth smelling shave goo in the mail, and they save you the trouble of spending a gajillion dollars on cheap plastic things at the Dwayne Reed. They save you the trouble of getting the people to open the clamshell packaging for you and going behind the thingamajig. It just shows up. And then you can shave and you have extra razor blades. And they also have a special deal for our listeners this week. Even if you're already a Harry's user like Steve, you can still sign up and get $5 off your next order. Or if you're starting for the first time, you can get $5 off a Winter Winston set with the code CULTUREHOLIDAY. 
As a special limited-time offer for the holiday, Harry's is giving all new and existing Harry's customers $5 off the Winter Winston set. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter the coupon code CULTUREHOLIDAY. And again, that, that Winter Winston set is a razor, three blades, and various smooth-smelling emollients. That's a good deal. Now, I have two questions. I'm curious to know whether you can answer them. The first is, do you think the word goo derives from the word unguent? Ooh, I like that theory. I bet it's not true. Okay. And second, do you think Harry's blades are made out of the same steel as Reese Witherspoon? <laughs> I would shave with uh, the cut of Reese Witherspoon's jib. I feel like you could repurpose her jawbone. <laughs> She's got that incredible chin, right? right. Um, so if you can't shave with Reese Witherspoon's jawbone, do the next thing. <laughs> And sign up for sign Harry's. Sign up for Harry's. So that's harrys.com, and our promo code is Culture Holiday. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. For most of the first phase of his career, the painter Henri Matisse, or Henry Matisse, used the technique of cutout only in an expedient way, that is, to mock up shapes and colors together for what would later become a painting. But toward the end of his life, he turned to cutouts almost exclusively. The new exhibit, Henri Matisse, The Cutouts, is up now at the Museum of Modern Art. It's up through the beginning of February. We went on a little field trip and we spoke with the conservator and the curator. Let's listen. We are at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and we're joined today by uh, Jody Hauptman, who is the senior curator in the Department of Prints and Drawings at the museum. And I already have made a mistake. <laughs> it's drawings and prints. Drawings and prints. And uh, Carl Buckberg, who is senior conservator, Carl. And Jody, welcome to the show. It's, we're so pleased to be here and see this work and discuss it with you. Oh, we're happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Why don't we start at the most general level and just describe briefly what a cutout is and what it meant to Matisse to be doing it at that particular point in his life and his career. I understand that cutouts go all the way back even before jazz in his career, but it was culminating artistic gesture on his part. Describe a little bit the method that he used and what kind of medium this is and what it meant to him. So the the story usually begins in the mid-1940s when Matisse used painted paper as his primary medium and scissors as his chief implement and essentially invented a new form called a cutout. But what we found in our research is that the story begins much before, and so we were curious about that. And so the exhibition really begins here in the 30s when Matisse is using cut paper as an expedient, not yet a method. And what I mean by that is that if you think about painting as a very labor-intensive activity where you paint and you scrape off the paint and you paint again. Again. But using cut paper, Matisse could um, look at changes or revisions in form or color by cutting bits of paper and looking at you know a, a red instead of a yellow or change of form. And so that's what we see um, at the very beginning of the exhibition. But maybe Carl wants to say something about the, the really the making of these because one of the uh, this exhibition is a is a collaboration between a curator and a conservator and so from the beginning we were very um, focused on materials and methods and I think there were three questions that we sought to answer from the beginning what is a cutout how are they made and what does that making mean and so I'll turn that over to Carl for to say those something my, about those the are my three questions I wish I wish I had thought of them but now that you've said them that's perfect uh, Matisse. 
would buy large rolls of paper, especially as the uh, technique was fully formed, and he would then purchase tubes of gouache. Gouache is a water-soluble matte medium. It's essentially a watercolor with a white added to make it opaque. And his assistants would uh, squeeze the tubes into a large bucket in, an or- in order to have enough uh, pigment to paint out a large sheet of paper. They would then uh, take a brush of maybe two inches wide and paint the sheets of paper with a color each assistant to the assistants were always female, so I could say that the she. They would um, paint the papers, introducing to these sheets a little bit of their own personality. Some of the assistants would uh, paint them a little more opaquely, some a little less opaquely, a little more transparently. Sometimes you see more brushstrokes, sometimes less. There are two assistants who are still alive, and they, in interviews, said that they introduced their personalities a little bit in this way. The papers would then be dried, flattened, and when Matisse wanted a single color or many colors, he would ask for it. They would be placed on the table around him, sometimes at his feet. And at the beginning, he would work uh, on a table, at a chair, sometimes in bed even, or sometimes in his wheelchair. And he would take a sheet of paper, and he would take his scissors. We see that in uh, movies that show him cutting. And he would cut a shape, and then when he was working on a small composition, he would take either a pin or a a tack, thumbtack, and put the cut shape in place. He would work on a composition, but the pins allowed him just as easily as he was pinning to unpin. So you see numerous pinholes, and these are evidence that the works were pinned and unpinned, and the composition was evolving over time. As the compositions grew in size, the boards migrated to the wall, and the wall essentially became his canvas. He was working in his studios, which were also his residences, and he was surrounded by the works. He would cut a shape. He would hand it to his assistant. He would either verbally point to a a spot or with a very long stick point to a spot. The assistants would pin it with a, a sewing pin and a hammer. The assistants always had a hammer around their neck, and they would work on the composition that way until Matisse was satisfied with it. And can you give us a sense of where this this was in Matisse's life? This was all in the last decade of his life, and you referred to a wheelchair. Was he was he pretty infirm when he was making a lot of this art? Well, I think um, I, I think there's a kind of easy story that Matisse. Um, well, he certainly was at the end of his life. It was in the last decade. So he begins working um, kind of really intensely with cut paper um, in the mid to late 1940s. And he dies in 1954. So that's the, the kind of intense period of the cutout production. Um, but there, there is, is a story that I think is kind of easily repeatable. And that is that he couldn't paint anymore. And so he um, cut paper instead. But in fact, I think what the exhibition shows is that it's not what he couldn't do, but what the cut paper did for him. And the exhibition in the kind of... um the kind of explosion of color and form that you see and the way the works go from being modest sized to being enormous, immersive works. You see the great ambition of Matisse, the way he takes this form and pushes it as far as he can go. It's not about giving up. And he could have, in a sense, um, kind of slid into retirement. He was a very successful artist at this point, but he doesn't. He invents something, and as I said, he takes it as, as far as, as he can go. So the exhibition tells many stories. One is a material story, I think, that, that Carl outlined about how he makes something, but there's also an incredible story of invention. One just picky question. 
To me, wielding scissors with this much dexterity seems like harder than wielding a paintbrush, which probably shows how little I know about wielding either. But, like, what kind of scissors did he use? Was he using some kind of intense, excellent scissors? Or how, how do you guys know anything about that? Matisse was born in the north of France in the textile-producing region, and Cateau, where he was born, was famous for very, very high-quality uh, textiles. And so he was born in an area where he was surrounded by fabric, by dyeing, by weaving, by scissors, and by pins. He is usually shown willing a very large pair of scissors. Sometimes people talk about them as uh, textile scissors or shears, although they're not pinking shears. They're not the kind that give you a serrated edge. But as a conservator, I've looked very closely at these works, and it's clear that he must have had many different size uh, scissors, and there are some of the works must have been done with smaller scissors more delicately, some of them with larger ones. So now we've moved to the room that's exhibiting jazz, which I'm curious for you guys to tell us a little bit about how this fits into his trajectory. So... Um Jazz is one of the greatest artist books of the 20th century, but people might not know that the images in the book, um, the plates, were designed um, using cut paper. And so what we're surrounded by are the original maquettes or designs for those plates. And so Matisse was um, commissioned by a Greek publisher named Terriad, who he was already working with on a, an important literary or art and literary journal called Verve to produce a set of what, what was he then, uh, what Terriad called colored colors. Collages. And so Matisse set about producing them on the theme of the circus. Um, and so we're really surrounded by this kind of exuberant um, circus-like forms. And also there are a wonderful three um, works that also look back to Matisse's trip to Tahiti that he makes um, in um, the early 30s that, is, uh, that are called the lagoons. And those are kind of these abstract, very biomorphic uh, forms. Um, and there are a couple things, I think, to think about with jazz. One is that um, he's working on these and um, cutting paper. And again, we would encourage people to think back to the first work in the exhibition, The Two Dancers, which has this um, incredible liveliness and three-dimensionality. Because these, these works, that uh, while we see them here, are, are a little bit flatter. And when Matisse um, sees the final book printed, the final plates, he, um, he feels like it's a failure because the, he sees them almost like a jigsaw puzzle. So he sees them as, as very flat. Because what happens is he's really fallen in love with the three-dimensionality of the cut paper, its pliability and its flexibility. And so it's at that point, I think, that he really understands that he's invented um, a new method, what he calls a cutout operation. And it's uh, with that that he then kind of carries on um, through the rest of the exhibition. So, Carl and Jody, I was curious about his work in stained glass and the, the chapel that he helped design in Valence, and I really now want to go sit in that chapel. It's, I assume, still standing with his, his stained glass in it, right? It is. I, and um, if you have the chance to be in the south of France, um, I would encourage you to see it. It's, it's in the town of Valence. And in our exhibition, we have a small gallery devoted to it. It gives a sense of the intimacy of that chapel. And we also have a touchscreen where viewers can look through pictures of the, of the chapel as it is now. Um, but let's go and have a look at the works in, in our room devoted to the Vons Chapel. 
So I guess my, my question about this um, stained glass chapel is big. It's partly, you know, material and how do you use paper to design glass, which in itself is this interesting cross-medium question. But also, how did he end up designing a chapel? Was he a religious man? Was this a, a commission that had some special meaning to him? And just what the story was of the, the creation of that chapel? So yeah, I think it would be good to start with the story. So the story is that a former nurse of Matisse's uh, became a nun, and she came to see him one day um, with a small drawing for a stained glass that she hoped would be uh, built into a new chapel that was going to be constructed adjacent to the nun's residence. And so he looked at her drawing and looked at it and looked at it, and then he set it aside and decided to make his own drawing. And that one, the design, that his own design for one, uh, for one uh, stained glass um, turned into um, the design for every element of this chapel. And so that was really the beginnings of it. And so here in, in our exhibition, we couldn't bring the chapel here as much as we would have liked to, um, but we try to um, give viewers a sense of the making of the elements of the chapel. But the chapel is entirely, it's abstract and kind of secular in design. It seems like there was no, was there any figuration or any religious imagery? Just as in jazz, the text in black and white was the counterpoint to the color illustrations. In the chapel, the walls facing the stained glass window have two or three separate scenes. One is the Passion of Christ, so you have the Stations of the Cross. That is black on white tiles. We have in this gallery three drawings uh, for those uh, tiles. And then on two other walls were St. Dominic and Madonna and So as you walk into the uh, chapel, you you see the stained glass windows on one side casting pools of color both on the floor, which is white marble with small uh, darker colored uh, accents, but also onto the black and white tiles facing it. So in fact, there are religious scenes. It's not totally secular. There is also the altar where Matisse designed both the tabernacle. In this exhibition, we see two, uh, three cutouts as preliminary designs for the tabernacle, and also he designed the uh, cross that sits on the altar. Was he a pious person, or is that not something that's known about Matisse? What was his own religious affiliation? He, 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 was, he didn't consider himself a religious person, and I think his interest in this was really the, um, the ability to work on an entire environment, to, to design every single element. And I also just want to point out we have a cut paper maquette for the priest's vestments. Matisse used cut paper to design those vestments, and that's a crucial component because when they're translated into silk and the priest puts them on and does the service, the, um, the space is literally animated with Matisse's color and form. And I just have to remark on this chasuble design that we're looking at in cut paper right now. It's just the, the greatest, craziest color for a priest chasuble, right? It's like tangerine orange with a, with a bright yellow cross in the middle and really kind of towing the line between an abstract design and, and one that invokes anything religious at all. Right. I think that um, I think through the exhibition you do see Matisse kind of um, in certain works moving toward abstraction, but um, he always kind of keeps his foot um, in um, something that's more recognizable or representational. So there is often this tension, and and, um, and so you, you you definitely see that in um, in the works for the Vons Chapel. Yeah, it's very playful. It's like a child's idea of a, of a priest's costume. 
the room I'd love to see next is the swimming pool room where you guys have uh, mounted basically a, a mural that he made with this technique. Um, but one thing, one question that, that both this room and that part of the exhibit raised for me is the notion of Matisse's designs as placed within a space, almost as decoration for a space, and where the line is between sort of fine art and decor and how he thought about all of that. I, I, that's a great question, and I think it, it um, in a way, it begins here where we are in the Vons Chapel, and then we, we see its implications or what Matisse learned from working on the Vons Chapel in uh, the room devoted to the swimming pool. So we could talk about that more then, but I, I think it's true that um, Matisse... Um, always embrace decoration and I think a lot of 20th century artists especially 20th century artists working with abstraction try to distance themselves from decoration um, maybe a painter doesn't want their work to be seen as wallpaper or fabric but Matisse was always interested in those forms from his um, earliest days as an artist he collected fabrics he was always interested um uh, in the art of Islam, he sees a, um, a very important exhibition early in his career, and so he's really interested in tile work and um, architectural ornament and calligraphy. And so all of that becomes very important to him at, you know, th- really throughout his career. And so we see in the cutouts uh, this embrace of decoration. I think most especially in a work, the um, very last work in the exhibition called Large Decoration with Masks, where you really see the patterning and repetition that's so characteristic of decoration. Let's go check out the swimming pool. In 1938, Matisse and his wife, Amélie, purchased two apartments in a late 19th century building called the Hotel Regina. And they put the two apartments together, they renovated it, and in one room they created a dining room, and at that time it was lined, all the walls were lined with burlap, which was an inexpensive fabric, but a style at the time. Perhaps he did that because you could uh, pin something up or you could actually tack something up and take it off without marring the wall, you wouldn't see the effect of the nails. 14 years later, in 1952, he said to his assistant, Lydia Delektorskaya, I want to draw divers. Take me to my favorite pool in Cannes. And so she hired a car. They drove to Cannes. It was so hot that there were no divers, no swimmers. He said to Lydia, it's so hot, I'm going to die from the heat. Take me home. I'm going to make my own swimming pool. And that's exactly what he did. So he had her pin up on the wall at a height of about five and a half feet a set of white pieces of paper creating a freeze and then at night we understand he would cut the blue form so he had this this point narrowed his palette just to blue and to white and he cut forms of swimmers divers sea forms and that became a work known as the swimming pool it stayed pinned to his wall until 1954 after his death uh, in 1954 it was traced It was unpinned. It was sent to Paris for mounting. His wife and his daughter oversaw the mounting, which was done by a firm called Lefebvre Fournay. And they decided to mount the panels onto burlap, even though they knew that the burlap was not uh, what we would now consider a conservationally sound material. It was the only thing that was honest to the conception of the room. And so it was mounted onto burlap. 
MoMA acquired this work in 1975. By that time, the burlap had already shifted from a light tan color to an orange-brown. By 1986, when I started working at MoMA, it was even more discolored. In 2008, I decided that this was time for the conservation process, and so the conservation of the swimming pool began at that point. It was the work that sparked the exhibition. So you guys have basically recreated the room here, right? We're in a small space. Has it been designed to the specifications of his actual room? So here we are standing in the pool, and you are absolutely correct that this room uh, is a recreation in size of the original dining room. The conservation project had three goals. The first was to return the color balance to tan for the burlap, white, and blue. The second was to install the frieze at its proper height, which should be about five and a half feet above the floor, and the third is to return the room to its original architecture. In previous installations here at MoMA, the frieze had been hung too low, and so we uh, worked very hard to get it exactly at the proper height. Also, previously, one would enter a door, as Matisse would have done, into the dining room, but then instead of facing a window opposite, there would have been another exit, one would have walked through, and it appeared that this work was really a corridor rather than a freestanding room. So we have recreated the original dimensions. As one looks up, the uh, architectural element which is holding the glass in place represents the actual height of the ceiling in the dining room. Right, so we have a sense of the placement and the colors, and I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about the conservation in a moment, but just to describe what it feels like, the the forms, you sort of have the frieze over the door behind you when you walk in that looks like bathers on the side, um, with sort of fruit-like forms that could be tomatoes or pomegranates or something. Um, and then around you, there's this whirl of motion that seems to get more abstract. There's some kind of backward splash and then a floating arm of someone swimming and then things that become ever more abstract. You have a star floating um, towards the window. And I think you see the same progression on the other side. So you're almost, as you enter the room, there's almost a trajectory from really seeing swimmers to just seeing shapes but you're, what you don't see is there's not like a floor or a dining table or a place setting or a, you know, you've, you've recreated the space, but not the fixins. Well, I, I think that was one of the questions that we asked ourselves in, in, during the conservation process. How would it be reinstalled and, and how much of the room should we recreate? Um, because you could really go all out. There was a mantle. The floor was black and white. Um, there was some elaborate um, curved molding. And there were actually other works also always um, pinned up with the swimming pool. So the, um, And that was kind of an important part of, um, I think, maybe Matisse's uh, studio, the life of Matisse's studio always, but certainly in this period where works really related to each other, even uh, cutouts relating to drawings, relating to paintings. Um, So that's what you would see in in photographs of the period. But I think in the end, we wanted people um, in this moment where the swimming pool is debuting again after being off you for more than 20 years, that people should really focus on the work itself and not be distracted by all all of those things. And we are in a museum after all. We're not in Nice as much as we would like to, especially today and this this rainy day. We're, we're, we're here in New York at the Museum of Modern Art. And so, um, you know, so maybe we have to be a little bit honest to where we are and that, um, you know, and, and you can only, um, you know, have how much can you really go back? And so we really, we really want people to really look closely 
um, at this um, you know, almost six-year conservation effort and what the results of that were. I think maybe listeners will hear a six-year conservation effort and the phrase may pass them by a little too quickly. I, I would love to give them a sense of just how not only arduous but in some ways Herculean the task was to recreate this as you have here. It was no simple thing and took you know man and woman hours uh, to an almost boggling degree. Talk a little bit about that. The first goal, as I mentioned before, was to return the color palette to tan, white, and blue, and what that required, and what my first decision was to remove the burlap that had been mounted onto in 1955. So it had been, in 1955, divided into nine panels. So what I did was take each panel from storage and put it face down on a table, and then start to figure out how to remove the burlap. I had thought, since our conservation scientists had analyzed the adhesive as methylcellulose, that maybe it would be weak enough that I could just pull the burlap back, um, almost like you would pull a Band-Aid off of your skin without damaging the paper, but that, in fact, turned out not to be the case. Then I tried a little bit of moisture, knowing that uh, methylcellulose is water-soluble, but what that was doing was allowing the white paper to delaminate. That was equally unsuccessful. So I finally decided, perhaps, to bite the bullet, and And what I did was I removed the burlap totally manually. There were two techniques. One was to unweave it just thread by thread by thread. And the other, when that was pulling off little bits of paper, was to take a Dremel tool, that's a rotary tool, to uh, abrade the back of the fabric just enough so I could then take a scalpel and scrape it off. This process, over a four-year period, took about 2,000 hours. So, yes, it was very arduous. But in, in, in my opinion, it was very successful. It allowed the paper to stay totally whole. It removed the burlap without causing any damage to the paper. I then sourced new burlap, had it dyed to a color which I felt was sympathetic to the white and the blue, and then it was uh, that was mounted by professional wallpaper mounters onto new medium-density fiberboard panels, which are covered with cork to give a little bit of tooth. Why did I want that tooth? What, instead of mounting this uh, with adhesive back onto the new burlap, it has been pinned onto the new burlap. I thought to myself, am I going to really use adhesive and mount it? Forty years from now, another conservator is going to say, this guy is crazy. He knew it didn't work the first time. Why did he do it a second time? I have gotten around that by pinning it back onto the panels using small pins. It has two benefits. The one is that after the exhibition, you can just unpin it, take the panels off of the burlap. I have a large crate with individual drawers for each of these panels. The second benefit is that as you walk in, you see that the work has a bit of a three-dimensionality, although it's not quite as three-dimensional as it would have been when Matisse was living with it. You can see that part of that uh, shadow and movement has been returned to the work. I have just like a baseline process question for you as a conservator. Like, do you, um, is there like a committee when you're like, all right, so I'm going to not do this, but I am going to do this. Like, are you just like alone in the studio with your, you know, little brushwork, like like a person playing operation and trying not to bump the edge or like, how how do you make, this is like a, a trust, you know, to preserve this work for future generations so that we can all experience the feeling of being submerged in this cool pool Like, are you just flying solo? Is there an approvals process? Like, how does it work? 
That's a complicated question, but I will answer it. There is a basic philosophy in conservation so that uh, all conservators work with that basic philosophy that anything that you need to do should be reversible. So everything that I've added, all the pencil could be erased off. Uh, of course, the burlap, which I've removed, can't really be replaced. I did actually save the burlap that was visible in the top and the bottom, and someone should someone be crazy enough to want to recreate the original panels, that could actually be done. So that is the first basic philosophy. Then uh, I did discuss with uh, the curators uh, what sort of a basic philosophy would have been in the restoration, but ultimately, yes, in this museum, the conservators... Uh, have the decision as to what the process is going to be, what the technique is going to be, and what the final outcome is going to be. Um, I think it is more an informed decision rather than going rogue on the conservation. <laughs> also, I've been solo, uh, not rogue. <laughs> I've been at uh, at the museum now for 28 years, so this is not the first work <laughs> that I've ever conserved. So there's a basic. Uh, knowledge pool behind this that um, um, I'm drawing on. Also, there are a certain number of other Matisse cutouts uh, that have been uh, conserved over the years. So I'm also using the uh, knowledge that was gained from those other conservation processes to base my decisions upon. That's so fascinating. I've, I've always wondered about that. It's so fun to get to pick your brain about it. I'm curious to hear you guys talk a little bit more about this work as a work and you know some of the stuff we were talking about in the Vance Chapel with the, the way Matisse blurred the line between fine art and decor. I, you don't understand until you're in the room that basically what he's doing is submerging you, right? Like if you're, you can imagine it's like a hot lunchtime in the south of France and you're sitting having a meal and basically what the mural does is put you underwater because of the height that it's at, like the splashing is above your head. Um, right, so the room is actually the swimming pool, right? I mean, we see he made the borders of the swimming pool and whoever's in the room looking at it is in the pool in a way. And I think that's one of the, 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 the questions about the, um, about the work and, and one of the, uh, the, the ways that it, it, it really is dynamic. I think there is a sense of being in the pool, but there's also a sense of, are you under the water? Are you swimming alongside the swimmers? Are you even, in some cases, in some parts, looking down into it and seeing the effect of light traveling through water? Um, and it really is the culmination of Matisse's work up until this point. And I, I think you especially see that in the use of positive and negative um, in, in this work, um, because that's something that we see throughout, and that tension between um, something that's solid and something that's, that's void. And there's many moments in here where you have this oscillation uh, between something that you see as figure or ground. You know, So is the blue, in some cases, it always body, or is it sometimes um, water around the body? And I, I think one great example is when you're looking into the room on the right, there's a very large figure um, that you see that where Matisse is actually using the white. So he never cuts the white. He's only cutting blue paper. So in this case, he's cut this, um, this very large curve out of blue paper, and then he separates it. And that separation, that allowing the white in, is what really forms this body. And so in this case, the blue is actually the space around the body, whether it's light or air or water. But in other cases, the bodies are built up from bits and pieces of blue paper. So I, I think that, that tension between um, 
what's figure, what's ground, what is um, what what is um, human, what is animal. Because sometimes there are things here that look like um, sea creatures. What is water? What is light? All of that is what I think gives this uh, work its energy. I mean, if we're kind of at a summation phase, then I have a larger question. We've talked a lot about process and materials and the physicality of the work. And what do you do? You think there is any way to account for the urgency with which people want to come and see this exhibit. It seems to have really hit some nerve. And once one is here, you can immediately feel why. But I don't know that I could put it into words, and I wonder if if you could. I think there are a lot of ways to answer that. I think that one is that the work is is really beautiful, and it's happy. I think that... uh, it, it seems to be simple, and it has a simplicity to the form, but it is really also incredibly complex. The color choice is complex, the quality of the line, the quality of the form is complex, and I think people are, are reacting to both of those things. As they walk through, uh, they, they really are responding to the work. I think that one thing is interesting is that Many of the works are very familiar. You open a book, you see it, the blue nude is familiar. And the works, when you see them in person, are so much more beautiful than they are when they're reproduced, that the quality of the gouache is really incredibly sophisticated. You don't get that in reproduction. But I think also another thing that the exhibition has shown that whereas one can see maybe one of these works in a collection, in a museum, or in someone's home, when you see them all together, you understand how big an impact they really have. The, the quality of seeing them all together really is important. It's, it's a completely different experience to see them in person than in a book. They kind of flatten out, and you, you think that they're, they look like primary colors almost, but you see that's the subtlety of color. And you see, um, I think as Carl was saying, this, um, this reduction of form to its essentials, what... Um, art historians often talk about is Matisse's economy of means. And so you get these, you know, a curve um, is um, a, is really a spine of a person or a um, just a triangular form is a wing of a bird. And I think that that um, the capturing the essence of things is something that is, um, is both accessible and complex at the same time. I think also that, you know, there has been this story, and people perhaps know it, and they come in that Matisse was ill and that he couldn't paint. And I think as you walk through and as you walk through the ending galleries and you see the magnificent size of these works, people are uplifted. They realize he was not diminished. He was increased. It's, it's wonderful work. And what he was able to accomplish at the end of his life is really quite incredible. Uh, Well, Jody and Carl, thank you so much for walking through this exhibit with us. It really was a singular experience, and we're profoundly grateful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. It's great fun for us, too. Thank you. All right. Well, once again, the exhibit is called uh, Henri Matisse, The Cutouts. It's at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan up through early February. Uh, We'd love to know what you think of it, but I think we should dialogue a little bit uh, about our own experience because I found this, Julia... Much to my surprise, Matisse has never been an important artist to me at all. Uh, I'm sure it's my fault, uh, but I found this profoundly moving to see this all together. And for reasons I'm not in touch with yet, but that's the best way, right? I mean, it'll come to me over maybe years, and I'll suddenly understand why. But right now, the effect on me was uh, was really total. I thought it was incredible. It's really overwhelmingly beautiful, I think. Like, the profusion of color and the perfection of the forms and just the balance of it 
of the different compositions are pleasurable. I mean, it's kind of purely pleasurable. It almost feels decadent, I guess. Uh, but it's really, especially today, it's just like a mucky day. Like my shoes are still wet from tromping up to 53rd Street. Um, and to be in this oasis of like serenity and beauty was lovely. Serenity and beauty that feel effortlessness, but that have so much work behind them. I don't know, Dana, what'd you think? I mean, I completely agree that the work is joyous and abundant and all about pleasure and and sort of a wonderful thing to immerse yourself in on a freezing cold day. But I have to say, I wasn't going to say this in front of the curator and the conservator who have spent, you know, years putting this exhibition together and scraping burlap covered paper. But I don't respond emotionally to this work that much or intellectually. Maybe maybe that is the problem for me. And this is not a critique of Matisse exactly. It's just an expression of what I am as an art viewer that when art is that... I don't know. I don't want to use decorative in a in a diminishing sense because I know that was something that the curator was standing up for, you know, in the exhibit and saying that decoration and printing and patterning was something that he was really interested in. But I don't know. I guess this work doesn't feel discursive enough for me to engage with it as a viewer, and that probably just has to do with the kind of art viewer I am. I don't think that I want when I go to a museum necessarily to just immerse myself in waves of color and pleasure, and that probably says something about my pinched crabby soul or something but (laughs) (laughs) you are not pinched crabby or bitchy in your soul Dana no matter how this rainy day is making you feel but um, I don't know there's something to me I like the sticking up for decor like I guess as someone who just appreciates and enjoys like texture and pattern and thoughtful color consonants and composition in all things I like the purity of that like I like the just unadulterated I think efficiency was one of the words that she used. And just the, I mean, in some ways, right, it's a little bit like the Coons, like the, it's virtuoso, right? It's, it's a virtuoso use of these just basics of line and color that maybe don't even get beyond just being beautiful and virtuosic. Um, but somehow, to me, right, I'm not sure what the meaning is. But I liked it. <laughs> well, I mean, I liked I really loved the story of the genesis of the swimming pool piece. You know, the idea that he was just an old man on a hot day who wanted to go to a swimming pool and sort of see people jumping in and feel the pleasure of being around a swimming pool. And because nobody was jumping in and the day was really hot and unpleasant, he just decided, take me home. I'll make my own swimming pool out of paper and pins. And that that is a great story behind the genesis of that room. And it's great to have that room reconstructed. But really, that room was just something that surrounded him when he was alive. You know, there's something a little bit sad about the abstraction of of that room that we see a picture of when he was living there with his family and with pictures and plants all around and, you know, to have it abstracted into a museum. I mean, it's obviously, it's a museum experience. It's different than visiting an artist's house. But there was something denatured about that that was a little bit sad. I feel, I mean, I, I feel about Matisse that the simplicity and the elemental quality of it is earned in the sense that he moved through so many phases, more traditional phases of painting, to get there. He didn't begin there, and it feels as though he didn't begin there. I mean, maybe this is to read too much into what I know of his artistic biography in a way, but you you feel as though he himself was not in any sense the word a simpleton, and so simplicity was was worked at and towards, and you can only come up with something with that universal power, even though it's so utterly elemental, but it's it's universal because of that elemental quality, having worked your way through much more traditional modes of re- representation and oil painting, which he did in his earlier career. I mean, they were not overly, you know, when he's painting in the 1890s in the style reminiscent of Van Gogh, it's not especially traditional. It's not considered really traditional at all. We look at it now and it seems traditional. But anyway, an artist who began with that elemental simplicity would just be 
childish as opposed to childlike. And I, 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 I didn't understand that maybe distinction uh, emotionally until I saw the work uh, in person. Well, despite our very views, I definitely think we'd all recommend people go and check it out. Oh, yeah, definitely. I can see why it's a huge blockbuster, crowd-pleasing show that you need to get time tickets for because it's, it's, it's sort of waves of, of prettiness and pleasure and color room after room. And it's true what the curator said, that that, that three-dimensionality of understanding the pieces almost as like flat sculptures you couldn't get from just, you know, buying the catalog and reading it at home. All right. Well, so once again, the uh, exhibit is called Henri Matisse, The Cutouts. It's at MoMA until early February. Uh, Highly, highly, highly recommended that you go. All right. Moving on. Uh, Julia, now we talk about our other sponsor. What do we have? We have a very exciting second sponsor this week. Uh, It is the film Boyhood, which we discussed on this show. We all thought was a mesmerizing and fascinating piece of work. Actually, another piece of work where... um, the process is part of what's fascinating about it, kind of like the Matisse show we just talked about. This is the the movie about a, adole- a boy's adolescence and childhood that was shot in real time um, a little bit every year, so you can see the actors actually growing old as the movie progresses. Uh, and it is now available to buy on digital HD four weeks before you can own it on Blu-ray. So you can finally watch it yourself if you didn't make it out to see it while I was in theaters or give it to someone who wants to watch a, a digital version of it. Um, again, this is the Richard Linklater film. It stars Patricia Arquette, Ethan Hawke, uh, newcomer Eller Coltrane. Uh, and it's just a really remarkable and, and unusual film and one that you in particular love, Dana. And I think also the New York Film Critics Circle just named it Best Picture, yeah, right? Yeah, we just voted it Best Picture of the Year. Uh, and some of the performances, too. Patty Arquette, Patricia Arquette, got a Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress award, which I really hope she gets recognition throughout award season because that is just a wonderful, wonderful performance. Yeah, she's terrific in the film. So definitely check out Boyhood if you haven't so far. It is now available to buy on digital HD. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Second chances, a second wind, seconds on dessert, all good things. So why do second novels have a bad rap? So asks Dan Coyce, the culture editor of Slate. Dan has joined us today to talk about second novels, literary sophomore slumps. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Uh, So with a first novel, as you point out, comes the excitement of a new thing, a critical little bit of critical grade inflation, which always helps, possibly a magazine profile. With a second novel comes, what, Bupkis, Birdsong, very little, very uh, very often. Dan, why? Explain it. Do you have a a grand unifying theory of the second novel? I have a couple. The first is that the second novel is almost always, for any ambitious writer, a product that is almost perfectly designed to annoy people who loved your first novel which is to say most ambitious writers want to do something different. Um, They want to try a new voice. They want to try new themes. They want to try new subject matter. They don't want to write another novel about 17th century China. But that's what their readers loved, if they were lucky enough to have readers who loved that first novel. And so you end up with a thing coming out in the marketplace, and the the people who assign reviews don't exactly know what it is because it's different than last time. Your publisher maybe doesn't know quite as well how to sell it, it's different than last time. And if any readers get their hands on it, they are potentially disappointed because it's different than last time. Not necessarily because it's worse. Often they're better, but because it's different. And that is a, and you don't have the benefit of being a mid-career novelist, right, where you've got six or seven novels under your belt and people understand this is what you do. You try different things each time and some of them are great and some of them aren't, but you have a bit of a name and you're respected. You basically have all the baggage of being a new novelist, but without the perks of being brand new and fresh and squeaky clean. 
I like that theory a lot, Dan. I think there's also probably several other theories we can explore over the course of the segment. But we should, before we get too far, uh, note that the occasion for this discussion is your attempt at a literary remedy, Dan, right? Slate has partnered with the Whiting Foundation to have a prize for second novels so that this often overlooked form gets a little bit more attention. So tell us a little bit about how that came about um, and what the process was like uh, and maybe even who the winners are. Yeah, absolutely. So we announced the winners this past week um, on the Slate Book Review. Um, we made a list, a list of five great second novels. It's called We Second That, the Slate Whiting Second Novel List. And I and four other judges chose five really great second novels from the last five years that we felt were not only really good, but had been unfairly ignored, that hadn't sold the way we wanted them to, that hadn't got the kinds of attention we wanted them to get, um, that weren't appreciated, we thought, as much as they should be for really being masterpieces, all five of them. And um, we uh, got suggestions from readers and, uh, and people in publishing. We requested uh, suggestions from every previous Whiting Award winner from the last 20 years. Um, the Whiting Awards, as you know, are an extremely prestigious prize for writers near the beginning of their career. But, of course, 20 years later, a lot of these are you know, great writers on their own right. Jonathan Franzen sent to suggestions. He's a former Whiting winner and many, many other people. And then we narrowed down all of those novels um, to five that we absolutely loved and that we specifically wanted to recommend. The judges were me, Sarah McNally from McNally Jackson Books, Sasha Weiss, the literary editor of The New Yorker, the novelist Colson Whitehead, and the novelist Ian Lee, um, both who have had, who had themselves had a great and maybe not fully appreciated second novels. And, um, and then we chose the books, and we announced them uh, this week. And let me tell you guys what they are. Uh, it's Lightning Rods by Helen DeWitt, which is a uh, rambunctious and deeply depraved sex comedy. Um, the Book of Night Women by Marlon James, which is an extremely intense novel about a slave plantation uh, at the turn of the 18th century. Um, Inferno by Eileen Miles, uh, which is an experimental novel about uh, the life of a poet in 70s and 80s New York. At Night We Walk in Circles by Daniel Alarcon, which is a novel about a, a theater troupe in an unnamed South American country that is just recovering from a long and arduous civil war. And finally, one that um, just since we awarded it last week has gotten a little bit extra press, Akhil Sharma's Family Life, which was just um, just the day after we announced it was... Um, named to the New York Times 10 Best Books of the Year list, but it's a really um, elegant and surprising book about uh, an Indian-American family uh, that undergoes a tragedy as seen through the jaded and extremely pissed-off eyes of their younger son. That one in particular sounded good to me. Colson Whitehead wrote the essay about that one, and um, he did a good job selling the book on its charms. So as as a, someone who reads widely but is not like up to the minute with new fiction and probably can't even be counted on to read all of the exciting first books that come out in a given year, much less keep track of all the second novels, this seemed like a tantalizing list of books. Why do you think they were overlooked? Was it just the second novelness? Were there particulars? There are uh, different things at play with a lot of these. I'll take as one example Helen DeWitt's book, Lightning Rods. Um, we found, actually, when we looked at a lot of these books, that the, these second novels often had sort of long and arduous writing and publication histories. You know, sometimes your second novel comes out the year after your first novel, 
or sometimes like Helen DeWitt, your first novel comes out in 2000 and is widely praised, and you're called a master, and you have a huge party thrown for you by um, Talk Magazine. Remember Talk Magazine? That was the thing <laughs> in 2000. And Helen DeWitt wrote this amazing novel called The Last Samurai then, um, and then for about 11 years couldn't sell her second novel, Lightning Rods. She wrote a bunch of other novels, couldn't sell those. Um, and the, I mean, the reason was that it was totally different. It was a completely out of left field thing as compared to The Last Samurai, which was a grand, wordy epic um, with sort of meta overtones, as opposed to Lightning Rods, which is a short and angry and funny sex comedy that offends nearly everyone who reads it. And she just couldn't find traction with it anywhere in the publishing world. And then when it finally got published, it got some nice reviews and then just sort of disappeared off the radar. And and so each of these books has a different story. But all of these stories have in common that at some point, some author had a work that that made clear that their talent lies even greater or beyond what they did in their first book. But it entered a marketplace and a review marketplace and sort of the entire publicity industrial complex that is publishing and couldn't find traction, at least in part because it had that sort of orphaned second novel status. And is that because, you know, there's only so many pages in the remaining book reviews of the world, um, not slates because we have the infinite pages of the Internet. But, That's correct. But most of the book reviews. Uh, and... You know, you're going to review the big new book from the big new people. Zadie Smith writes, you're going to review it. Um, you know, there's a new Phil Roth, Philip Roth. I mean, I guess there's supposedly not going to be any more new Philip Roths. But whatever. When the big guns come out, you got to review those. You got to do a bunch of nonfiction, whatever's interesting. And then it's sort of like, hmm, novels by people people haven't heard of. Uh, let's highlight this exciting new ingenue that everybody's excited about, as opposed to last year's ingenue who hasn't yet become the next uh, Jonathan Franzen. Is that the calculus, or what's the, you know... Yeah, that's part of it, but it goes back, I mean, bef- even before that decision that the book review editor makes, it comes goes back to the decisions that the publishers make. I mean, publishers, look, we love publishers, and we really love the publishers of these books, but at the same time, every single one of these books when it was published, um, or when it was rejected by numerous publishers, was in competition with all the other books that that publisher had to sell in any given publishing season. And when you are a publicist, when you're a marketing person, when you're even the editor or the publisher at that house, you have a real cost-benefit analysis decision to make with regards to a book. And when a book presents itself as difficult to sell for some reason, it often happens that these books fall off the map even before they land on a book review editor's desk. And so they get fewer galleys, they get less marketing muscle, and you also just generally get sales reps going out into the publishing world who just don't have a great sense of how to sell this book to all the bookstores on their accounts. And so it's just this sort of cascading effect all the way down the line. And and once it gets to the point of you, Julia, the avid reader who didn't maybe isn't going to hear about all these books, these books never even make their way onto your radar. Dan, have you thought a lot about um, how many great novels are third novels? It seemed to me that was kind of the pattern. There's the first autobiographical one that gets you on paper and out into the world. The second one in which you laboriously attempt to reproduce your success or flee from it, whichever it is. And then, you know, Augie March is a third novel. I mean, they're not going to come to me now, but I had a little list in my head. But people, I think Gone Girl 
might be a third novel. There's some third novel, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of hitting your stride right around number three. But I mean, Pride and Prejudice is a second novel. Ooh. Rabbit Run is a second novel. Ooh. I was looking up some some hot second novels out there, and it seems like a lot of people hit their stride in, in those years. Two, yeah. But something that strikes me reading these five write-ups of the the winning books is that a lot of second novels have significant personal struggle involved for the writer, and, I, and then it made me think of writers like Ralph Ellison, who never produced his second novel, oh, sure. who agonized yeah. over it for, what, decades, and then his house burned down and burned the book, and he never wrote it. Um, but, for example, Akhil Sharma, the guy who wrote Family Life, who must be having a very good week, having made your list and then made the New York Times best books list, um, but he wrote his book for 12 years. That was an incredible story. He wrote 7,000 pages that he eventually winnowed down to less than 300. 24, yeah. Mm. And he, I mean, he actually wrote a great piece for The New Yorker, which people should check out, about that process and how, you know, in the end, the result is a book that he is really proud of, but was it really worth 12 years of his life and, you know, the peak 12 years of his writing career, perhaps? Who can say? Mm. <laughs> it just, it seems like for, for a lot of writers that you spit out, you know, the thing that you've had in your brain all through adolescence or whatever, and then, you know, it's back to the drawing board. I mean, it seems like the second novel is really kind of the test of a writer's mettle in that way. And it sounds like Helen DeWitt, whose book you wrote about, also had a huge struggle getting her book published, right? I mean, there's just, it seems like there's a lot of, of going around knocking on doors and gnashing of teeth and rending of garments with second novels. Dan, I have to ask you uh, before you go, have you ever read uh, Wonder Boys by Michael Shabin? Yes. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the story of that is that he wrote Mystery of Pittsburgh, published it when he was in his early or at the latest mid-20s, was thought of as the next great thing, uh, huge critical acclaim and expectation that then massively burdened him to follow it up with a large masterpiece because Mysteries of Pittsburgh, while a wonderful novel, is slight. It's a good, great first novel, but it's small, labored, labored for years and years and years to produce a huge book, decided he couldn't do it, lifted that boulder off his shoulder, and then just flowed through the writing of Wonder Boys, which is about the MFA world and writers and their impediments. And it's one of, to me, it is one of the most delicious fiction reading experiences of the last 10, 12 years of my life. Shaven is delicious anyway, but I've never but read he, that one. But he disposed of this. In other words, he, 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 he lived the slump and then disposed of it in this Sisyphean heroic gesture and kind of just destroyed his second novel, the great novel, and wrote a fun one. And the fun is, is so convincingly fun. Uh, yeah, and that's like rocketing up my list the way you're talking about it. So, yes, Shaven's second novel that never became a second novel was called The Lost World. Um, and it was all about a planned city outside of Washington, D.C. He worked on it for years and years and years and years and years and years. And then, as you say... Stephen, he gave up on it and just wrote Wonder Boys, which is a million times better. One of the funnest things on my shelf that I hadn't even thought about in, in relation to this list before you brought it up, Stephen, is that a couple of years ago, um, in an issue of McSweeney's, they published uh, a, a big chunk of that wrecked novel uh, by Chapin. He published it, and he, in fact, annotated the entire thing. And to read this annotated section of this lost novel that he wasted years of his life on is to sort of see like a, a writer essentially going insane because he footnotes it uh, all along, noting every single horrible thing he can't believe that younger him wrote and every wrong turn he took that he can see now going through it as a more mature writer. And so you're absolutely right that this process of making a second novel, Dana, is often sort of like that's the litmus test for whether a writer really is a writer or whether they just had one great novel in them, right? Because the old... Art, I guess, is that a first novel contains 
literally everything that happened in your life up until that moment. That is what pours into that. And then when you sit down for that second novel, you are starting exactly from zero. You've used everything you had. It all went into that story. And now you are figuring out whether you are a writer or whether you just had that one story to tell. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, um, the uh, the piece up is up on Slate. It's called Fighting the Sophomore Slump, Five Novels at a Time. It's by Dan Coyce, the culture editor of Slate.com. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a total delight. All right. And guys, there's a there's a party Wednesday night um, in New York. I hope you guys can come. And if listeners want to come, they are invited to. There's an open bar, in fact. Ooh la la. No, that's the best way to get people to pay attention to, to books. Free the booze. Novels, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so we'll have details for that party, which is the night that this uh, episode comes out, Wednesday, December 10th, on our show page. And we'll also have links to each of these five novels so you can check them out for yourself. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens' What Do You Have? Uh, my endorsement this week is going to be holiday-related because I assume that people are going online and buying presents and buying books and buying second novels that won the Slate Whiting Prize and I want them all to go and do that on Powell's.com instead of Amazon. So I'm basically doing a product placement for my favorite online bookstore. Just with all of the bad uh, information about Amazon that's out there, I mean, we can link to various takedowns of Amazon from various points of view. There's a lot of reasons to dislike that company. But even if you can't escape the tentacles of Amazon in every way and you're going to buy your gallons of paint there and rent your movies from there. Just please, please buy your books from Powell's Bookstore or some other online bookseller. That's that's my pitch. I actually convinced someone on Twitter of this the other day, a woman who I think is a professor and buys a lot of books for her job and was saying, well, but I have to go to Amazon. The one-click ordering, it's so easy. The interface at Powell's is just as good. The selection is just as huge. And you are not killing publishing. You are saving publishing when you buy your books from someplace else. So Cheryl Strayed would approve of that uh, Portland, Oregon-based recommendation. Absolutely. Yeah, keep Portland weird (laughs) from Powell's. Powell's is the best. Um, Julia Turner, what do you have? Uh, I have another gift-friendly recommendation. Um, Have you guys ever been to the store Poster Atati? I've looked at their online site a lot. It's yeah. beautiful. I mean, it's perfect for our listeners because it's national. So basically, this is a New York poster shop um, that sells old movie posters. And they sell, they have an incredible collection, and it's very searchable online. They have this awesome database, so you can go through and find the Polish poster for Back to the Future, or you can find uh, an old German poster for Maltese Falcon, or you can find, um, you know, like the the... Japanese poster for airplane, you know, with the, the twisted plane tied in a knot. They have all sorts of genres. They have some additional, like, publicity stills and promotional materials. They have all kinds of cool stuff there. A wide range of prices. I mean, there's some, you know, if you go to their little studio in New York, they have this extraordinarily gorgeous King Kong poster that's worth, like, $75,000 that nobody's going to buy. But they have things for, you know, 100 bucks. And and even less. And it is it's always a tricky challenge. It's a hard gift because what movie do you like enough to have an image of on your wall? And then what movies that you like enough to have an image of on your wall do you also like the poster of? And adding in the international element is really fun because you get all of these kind of neat like Eastern European versions of movies. Oh, Polish movie posters are incredible. Mm. Well, and you can search. There's all kinds of different categories. So you can search by poster artists. So you can sort of realize who are the actual artists who made this, you know, set of fascinating posters that you find yourself drawn to and then track their work and find their their images of of other posters. And they also have all these collections by by interest. So even if you don't care about what movie it is, like I I love images of planes and birds. And they have an aviation collection, so you can look at all the sort of ones that have helicopters and airplanes in them. Um, They have a, a 
Bird's collection, which is not all Hitchcock, even though you might expect it would be all Hitchcock. Um, you know, bicycles, any other sort of theme, nautical, outdoor, they have all kinds of different ways that you can sort and slice and dice. It's just like an amazing collection of Moviana. So it's it's a little confusing what the name is. It's Posteritati. There's like an extra syllable in there. Uh, P-O-S-T-E-R-I-T-A-T-I. Um, assume.com, but I'll post a link to it on the show page. If I can just add a code to that endorsement, they also have a Twitter feed that's great where they'll do a poster of the day, poster of the week, you know, oh, go by themes and say yeah. like, you know, let's look at all the Vertigo posters from, you know, every country we can find or kind of round things up in that way. It's really fun to follow. Oh, fun. I don't um, I don't actually follow them on Twitter, but I should. Uh, fantastic. Okay. I- I'm going to endorse... Um, uh, speaking of masters in their late phase where they reduce down their work and the subject of their work down to its uh, simplest and most universal elements. There's an American philosopher named Thomas Nagel, been very prominent for decades now, probably most famous for uh, an essay he wrote. What uh, is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be a bat? But he's written about the nature of consciousness and human reason within uh, an otherwise uh, material framework for explaining the world. And he's written what I think is a somewhat unrecognized late masterpiece. His last book, very recent book, was called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. I think he was undone a little bit by his subtitle, which I'm going to choose to believe was foisted upon him by the publicity industrial complex of whoever his publisher is, Um, because it's a much better book than the subtitle would imply. It's actually, it's a very small book. It's very simple. It's utterly elegant. And it's you feel the force of a lifetime of thought behind it. And he's asking, how does human reason appear in the world if you have a purely materialistic or mechanistic account of the world? If you're a thoroughgoing monist, you really believe that there is no duality, spiritual or otherwise, that accounts for human consciousness. Isn't human reason an anomaly that goes beyond any sort of just so mechanistic explanation for its emergence from adaptive advantage. And I think at the very least, he asked the question in a way that can't be dismissed by this scientific, scientistic hauteur. And what I love is the, is the, is the rhetorical elegance and simplicity of the way in which he poses that question over and over and over again, so that it puts you back into a, a, a firmly agnostic state of mind about your own ability to reason and whether or not it emerged from our, you know, natural genealogical, common natural genealogical inheritance. Um, so to that, to my mind, it's a, it's a, it's a triumph. And it, it, got, it got lost a little bit because I think people think of it as topical in the same way what it's refuting is topical. And it's not. It's a, it's a life gesture, if you ask me. And to my mind, this is a work of American philosophy that might be read for decades and decades, long after the people that it's supposedly answering have been forgotten. So. I think we should have the uh, Steve Metcalf uh, forgotten late works of philosophy list mm-hmm. as well. There are some very good ones. Yeah, Philosophy I'm and Social saying. Hope by Richard Rorty. Yeah, you should, some really, uh, yeah. You I'd go there. Start cogitating. No one else would go there with me, but I would go there. I also like your use of the word scientistic. It's good. I know. Thank you. I'm glad you <laughs> caught that. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Next time you'll catch my use of science. (laughs) I know you will. Thanks, Steve. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. 
Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens, Julie Turner, and Dan Coyce, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Yeah.